want to turn in God's Word this morning to Psalm 34. Psalm 34. I was in London using the Psalms as the Scripture texts, using that in conjunction with the Heidelberg Catechism preaching through this round through the Heidelberg Catechism. So for your information, that's why I've been mostly picking psalms in connection with the Heidelberg Catechism. The theme of the Catechism is comfort, and that fits well with the psalms where there is much comfort to be found. Considering this morning Lord's Day 33, which teaches us about conversion, mortification, and quickening, Let's read now God's word in Psalm 34. A psalm of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, who drove him away, and he departed. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make her boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear thereof and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he heard me, and delivered me from all my fears. They looked upon him and were lightened, and their faces were not ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him, and delivereth them. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. O fear the Lord, ye his saints, for there is no want to them that fear him. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they that seek the Lord shall not want any good thing. Come, ye children, hearken unto me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is he that desireth life and loveth many days, that he may see good? Keep thy tongue from evil and thy lips from speaking guile. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous and His ears are open unto their cry. The face of the Lord is against them that do evil to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. The righteous cry, and the Lord heareth, and delivereth them out of all their troubles. The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart, and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivereth them, delivereth him out of them all. He keepeth all his bones, not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and they that hate the righteous shall be desolate. The Lord redeemeth the soul of his servants, and none of them that trust in him shall be desolate. Thus far we read God's inspired and infallible words. May God add his blessing upon the reading of his holy scriptures. So on the basis of what we have read in Psalm 34 and many other passages of the scriptures besides that we find the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 33. Question 88, of how many parts doth the true conversion of man consist? Of two parts, of the mortification of the old and the quickening of the new man. What is the mortification of the old man? It is a sincere sorrow of heart that we have provoked God by our sins and more and more to hate 
and flee from them. What is the quickening of the new man? It is a sincere joy of heart in God through Christ and with love and delight to live according to the will of God in all good works. But what are good works? Only those which proceed from a true faith are performed according to the will to the law of God and to his glory, and not such as are founded on our imaginations or the institutions of men. Beloved congregation in the Lord Jesus Christ, the order in which the Heidelberg Catechism treats the various subjects related to conversion is noteworthy. The order in which it treats the aspects of conversion reveals to us something of the purpose of the Heidelberg Catechism. The Catechism is not intended to be simply a dogmatic or a doctrinal exposition of the truths of the Holy Scriptures. If it was the case that the Heidelberg Catechism's primary purpose was to serve as a doctrinal book that set forth one after another of the doctrines of the Holy Scriptures, then the order of the Catechism needs to be reversed. See, last week in Lord's Day 32, we faced the question of why? Why must we still do good works? If we, it's true that we've been delivered from our sins and the guilt of our sins, merely of Jesus Christ, then we ask the question in Lord's Day 32, why must we still do good works? So first, the Catechism established the necessity of good works. And then... In Lord's Day 33 and following, the Catechism goes on to teach us what are good works. And can you see how that order is reversed from what would be the normal approach in something that is designed simply to be an educational tool? If you're going to teach someone about good works, your starting point would be to say, this is what good works are. And then after you've explained what the character of good works is, then you would move on to, now here's why you should do good works, why you must do them. But the catechism reverses that. Before it says a single word, about the character of good works, it begins with the necessity. Here's why you must do them. Out of gratitude to God, that God may be praised, that by our godly conversation, others may be gained to Christ. And now understanding the necessity of good works, now the catechism digs into what are good works. This teaches us, reveals to us the purpose of the catechism. It's not merely a dogmatic explanation. But the purpose of the catechism is to be personal and experiential. And is not that the case oftentimes in our lives? First, we need to know why we must do something. And then after we know why, okay, now you may teach me 
what it is that I must do. And so in a very practical way, the catechism comes alongside of us in our earthly pilgrimage. Let's consider then this morning the Christian's true conversion. First, we'll consider the old man and the new man. Second, mortification and quickening. Third, sorrowing and rejoicing. The Catechism speaks of two men, two people. How many parts the true conversion of man consist? Of two parts, of the mortification of the old and the quickening of the new man. So we begin by considering who then is this old man that the Catechism speaks of here. His name indicates that he's been around for a while. He's an old man. How long has this old man been around? Well, he's been around ever since the fall of Adam and Eve into sin. The old man is that corrupt, fallen nature that we receive from our parents and which is then passed from one generation to the next generation. The old man is that corrupt nature that resides within each and every one of us. It is not the case that when we come into this world that we are born into this world neutral, neither good nor evil, as the Pelagians asserted, but that then by imitation we become base throughout our lifetime. It's not the case that we are born into this world with a free will, as the Arminians would assert. That you're born and you can now make a choice, and the choice is up to you, whether you are going to be a child of God or be a servant of the evil one. But rather, we are born into this world with that corrupt nature. How many hundreds, if not thousands of years, has there not been development of that corrupt nature throughout the generations? The sins that parents walked in their children run in those sins. That corrupt nature develops from one generation to the next generation. How powerful is this old man of sin that is within us? The reality is that the old man is the servant of sin. It's not just the case that the old man delights in sin and chooses to perform that which is sinful. But we must go one step further here. The old man is bound by the devil. He's controlled by the devil. The old man of sin doesn't have a choice. It's not as if that old man can determine whether he's going to do good or whether he is going to do evil, but that old man is in shackles and he's controlled by the devil himself. And that old man can only delight in that which is ungodly. Always and only that old man of sin hates what is the will of God and seeks to flee from the presence of God and wants nothing to do with God Himself. Always that old man of sin that is found within us delights in the evil desires of the flesh. And there is nothing of ourselves that we can do about that old man of sin. That's in short the old man, received from our parents, found in each and every one of us, the servant of sin. 
Who then is the new man? Catechism mentions both here. Conversion is mortification of the old and it's quickening of the new man. Sharp contrast between the old man and the new man. The new man is the regenerated will. The regenerated nature that God himself by his Holy Spirit gives to his elect children. Whereas the old man is found in us naturally and thus is common to every person head for head across the face of this earth, the new man is not universally found. But the new man is limited to those who are chosen by God in Jesus Christ. He is the new man in Jesus Christ, and as the new man, he is righteous in every aspect. As God is holy, so the new man is holy. The new man seeks first the kingdom of God. He obeys that law of God, yea, he even delights in that law of God. He seeks the law of the Lord in his inward parts. Not only is it the case that that new man that is found within the child of God is righteous and delights in that which is righteous, but we can go one step further here. The new man that is found within us can only perform that which is righteous. Just as it was the case for the old man, that the old man of sin is a servant of sin and is enslaved to sin, so it is likewise true that the new man of Jesus Christ is a servant of Jehovah God, delights in Jehovah God, and only can will and desire that which Jehovah God wills and desires. John states this in 1 John 3, verse 9. Whosoever is born of God doth not sin, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Now, let's be clear, we're talking here about the new man when we say he cannot sin. We are not talking about the whole of the person, but only about the new man, that new regenerated heart that is found within the child of God. For us to understand more fully this new man, we must know something about regeneration. We've mentioned that word already. The new man is given unto us at that moment of regeneration. Regeneration is that work of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus Christ, where He gives unto us a new birth. By nature we have corruption, that corrupt nature within us. But then at that moment of regeneration, God takes that which is dead and he makes it alive. He does not give unto us a new person, but it's regeneration. It's taking that which is dead within us and making it alive. Regeneration is not, and we must not understand regeneration to be improving upon that old man of sin. That's not regeneration. Regeneration is not a, a process, a continual process, whereby that old man of sin is more and more sanctified so that over the passing of time that 
the, the, the evil desires of that old man of sin begin to fall away and that old man becomes righteous and holy. That's not regeneration. The regeneration is the work of the Holy Spirit to place new life, regenerated life, in the child of God. It's the Christian's first resurrection. And then after regeneration, there exists within the child of God, the old man and the new man. The old man and the new man are side by side within God's children. Regeneration does not destroy that old man of sin. But regeneration places new life alongside of the old man so that there are now two natures in the children of God. So that we confess, I have within me that old man of sin that delights in darkness and in immorality and in fleeing from God But I also confess that I have within me the new man who delights in light, who loves the righteousness of God. On the one hand, oh, what a wretched man I am, as I yet have within me that sinful nature. On the the other hand, I live, nevertheless, yet not I, but Christ liveth within me. As these two natures, the new man on the one hand and the old man on the other hand, are found within the person of the child of God, you know full well that there is no warmth No intimacy between the old man and the new man. But they're at war one with another. They're side by side and they're close to each other and yet they despise one another and they war one against another. And the second point, we're going to look at mortification. And children, do you know what mortification means? It means to put to death, to kill. That's what's happening. That's the intensity of the battle that is within us. There is within us that old man and that new man of Jesus Christ. There's internal warfare as they battle the one against another. Children, this coming Friday, God willing, we're going to have a chapel about the armor of God. And oh, how we need that spiritual armor to protect us in this warfare, this Christian battle that God calls us to fight in. Membership in this battle is not voluntary. We don't offer up ourselves by our nature to fight willingly in this battle, but God Himself commissions us to fight in that Christian battle. The new man of Jesus Christ waging in warfare against that old man of sin. So understanding then something of the new man in Jesus Christ and the old man of sin, the calling then is to be converted. The Catechism explains conversion as quickening and mortification. How many parts the true conversion of man consists of? Of two parts, the mortification of the old and the quickening of the new. So let's begin with mortification then. What is the mortification of 
the old man. Catechism explains it's a sincere sorrow of heart that we have provoked God by our sins and more and more to hate and flee from them, that is, from our sinfulness. The head of our catechism here gives a, a deeply spiritual explanation of what it means to mortify that old man of sin. Who of us, if we were asked to describe mortification, would describe it in this way? Sorrow of heart, hating our sins, fleeing from them, What war general, if he was asked how he's going to mortify the enemy, how he's going to kill the enemy, would say, yeah, this is how we're going to kill the enemy. We're going to be sorry. We're going to hate them. And we're going to run away from them. And you see how this is contrary to the wisdom of the world. No earthly natural person would ever describe mortification in such a way. This is how we're going to kill, mortify that old man of sin by having sorrow of heart for the sins that we've committed against God, hating those sins more and more all of our lifetime long and then flee from them You see here that the Hedeberg Catechism in its description of conversion is speaking of conversion and what we would call conversion in in the broader sense. Sometimes there can be confusion among Christians in what is meant by conversion. You can read in books, Christian books, stories of individuals who were converted. And the way that these stories will oftentimes present the idea of conversion is that previously this person was an unbeliever and walked in sin and unrighteousness. But then suddenly this person was gripped by some sort of a mystical experience, had this sense of heaven wash over them immediately, And suddenly and dramatically that individual is converted and from that day forward then that person lives in obedience and gratitude unto God. And so because of how novels can portray this idea of conversion, there can be confusion among Christians about what is meant by conversion. But it becomes very clear here that the catechism is not speaking of conversion in in the sense of that moment of regeneration. Regeneration is that moment in time when the Spirit enters in our hearts and quickens us and gives us life. But conversion, on the other hand, is living out of that regenerated heart that is within us. Conversion, as is described by the Catechism, is not something that happens just one moment in time. But conversion, according to the Heidelberg Catechism here, is a lifelong process. Rare is the time when someone who is born into a covenant family, covenant home, can point to specifically the moment of his or her regeneration. Oftentimes it happens without our consciousness, below the level of our consciousness. Oftentimes for those who are God's children, regeneration happens within the womb. The conversion is something that happens at the level of our consciousness. Conversion is hating 
our sins. Hatred. Hatred has become very unpopular in the world in which we live today. The teaching is tolerance. The teaching is love. The teaching is acceptance. And anybody who speaks of hatred privately or publicly is labeled as a bigot or worse. Hatred. Who would dare to stand up and say we're called to hate. That's the instruction of the head of our catechism here. We are to more and more hate our sins which we have committed against God. Not calling us merely to be ambivalent toward our sins, but hate them. It's hard to hate our sins. By nature, we don't hate them, but we love them. That's why we commit them. The only way we can hate our sins is when we see that sins are an offense against the good the holy, the saving God. It's when we know that God who dwells in light and in whom there is no darkness has taken us into His covenant, into His family, and that He causes the light of His countenance to shine down upon us, that then we can hate that which God hates. And then we're called to run, flee. That's part of mortification. That we hate and flee from them. The psalmist speaks of this movement in Psalm 34, verse 14. Depart from evil. The purpose here of departing from evil, of fleeing from sins is so that we might be as far away from sins as possible, lest we be tempted. The old man of sin within us is so strong that if we try to live as close as possible to sin without actually committing that sin, the reality is that we'll be tempted beyond what we are able to bear. And so the catechism with wisdom instructs us to flee from sin. Don't try to tiptoe that line as closely as possible to sin, but get as far away from sin as you possibly can. It starts in our minds. That with our minds we must flee from sin and depart from evil. That means with our minds we don't entertain the base desires of the flesh. We don't let our mind run over and over again thinking about the satisfaction that would be derived from carrying out this or that sin. But in our minds, we flee from it. And then what starts in our minds and must as well be carried out in our bodies. At times, it's necessary that physically we distance ourselves from places where we would be tempted to sin. Look in your life for patterns. Where are places where I am tempted to sin? Is it when I'm alone? In the bedroom? And I have a cell phone with me? Flee from it. Is it on the weekend? when I'm with other young people or young adults and I know that there's going to be alcohol present, flee from it. Hate it and flee. 
And then the catechism speaks of quickening, quickening. According to answer 90, quickening is sincere joy of heart in God through Christ. And especially this now, with love and delight to live according to the will of God in all good works. Quickening. It's loving. It's delighting in God. The psalmist speaks of quickening in the second half of verse 14. The first half of 14 is the negative, depart from evil. But then the second half is the positive description here of the quickening. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Quickening is the necessary counterpart to the mortification of the old man. Always these two must be found together. We may not have simply the mortification of the old man without having as well the quickening of the new man. And we need reminders of this because sometimes we can think that the, that the Christian life or Christian discipline is simply about saying, no, 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 don't do this, don't do that. You read through the commandments, how many of them are negative? Don't do this, don't break that commandment. In parenting, how many times is not that the way that we treat our children? No, don't do that. That's naughty. Don't touch that. We have a lot of emphasis upon the negative, the mortification of that old man, but there must then be a balance in the Christian life as well having that quickening of the new man. What's the importance of having that that counterpart, the quickening of the new man? Well, the importance in the first place is There's no joy in a life where one is simply saying no, no, no all the time. Where's the joy of living in Jesus Christ if all of Christianity subsists in saying no to the desires of the flesh? So that on the one hand is the importance. But then the other part of the importance of the quickening of the new man is this, beloved, We need the quickening of the new man in order to fill that void that is left behind when one says no to the old man of sin. Let's say there's something that we covet, we desire. Maybe it's alcohol. And someone knows Okay, I must say no to the abuse of alcohol. So he says no to it, and he becomes very disciplined at saying no to it. But what will happen if that person stays at that point and does not progress on to a life filled with good works, the quickening of the new man? If he stays at that point of just saying no to that which he knows is sinful, there's going to be a void left in his or her life. He'll have unmet desires. And then because there's that void, eventually he or she will go out and find some other sin to fill in that void that is left behind. And so that's why the Heidelberg Catechism with wisdom speaks not only of that mortification of the old man of sin, saying no to the desires of the flesh, but there also is that necessary counterpart of saying yes to the will of the Lord. Quickening. It's yielding ourselves as instruments of righteousness 
unto God. Quickening. It's putting our necks to the yoke of the law of the Lord and walking in obedience unto that law. Quickening. It's not begrudgingly putting our necks to the yoke. But according to the catechism, it is with love and delight to live according to the will of God in all good works. How hard it is to say that. We love the law of the Lord. Oftentimes our perspective toward the law is that of begrudging submission. Fine, I'll do it because it's expected of me. But love and delight. Oftentimes we can view the law of the Lord as like a box or a container. And that box keeps us in. And as long as we're keeping that law, then we're inside the box. But sometimes we peer over the edge of that box and look what's outside of that box of the law of the Lord. And ah, there's joy and there's happiness. Look at the the fun that the people of the world are having. If only I could get out of this box that is the law of the Lord, then I could have joy and happiness. But the catechism speaks with love and delight to keep the law of the Lord. How can we keep that law in our inward parts? The only way that we can love the law of the Lord is through Jesus Christ. See, the power of conversion is not found in you or in me by nature, but the power of conversion is in Jesus Christ Himself. Conversion is first and foremost the work of God. It is only by Jesus who pours out His Spirit within us that we are able to will and to do of His good pleasure. We must always maintain that the quickening of the new man is first the work of God. And then we become active because God works in us. When does this conversion happen? It's right now, beloved. It's not tomorrow. It's not next week. Young people, it's not when you become more mature in the church. Sometimes we can have that mentality that later on I'll grow up. Later on, devote myself more to the service and life of Christianity. But for today, I can eat, drink, be happy. Later on, then I'll become a more mature Christian. There's no guarantee that God will give us tomorrow. Calling right now is to mortify that old man of sin and quicken the new man of Christ. The psalmist specifically speaks to the children. Psalm 34, verse 11, Come, ye children, hearken unto me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Conversion starts in our childhood and it continues all our life long. It must continue all our life long because, as we said earlier, there's no improvement on that old man of sin. You can't fix that old man. You can't sanctify that old man of sin. He is the servant of sin, and for as long as that old man has 
existence, he will continue as the servant of sin. It is not the case that through daily conversion we become more and more regenerated. Or that eventually we are delivered from the body of death while we remain upon this earth. But no, the only thing that can ever deliver us from that old man of sin is our physical death. When we are delivered from this earth and brought into the joys of heaven. So all our life long then we go through this cycle of sorrowing and rejoicing. Sorrowing and rejoicing. Sorrowing, that's the first description that the Catechism gives of what is the mortification of that old man of sin. Mortification is a sincere sorrow of heart that we have provoked God by our sins. Sorrow, that's what characterizes the Christian upon this earth. It's a godly sorrow that we have over our sins. So different is godly sorrow from what the Scriptures call a worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is grief over the consequences of sin. Worldly sorrow is a sorrow unto death. Worldly sorrow is feeling bad simply because of the shame that comes upon me or upon my family because of this sin that was committed. Worldly sorrow is having grief of heart because my name or my reputation has been tarnished by this or that sin that has been committed. That's not what the Catechism speaks of here, a mere sorrow over the consequences of sins. But this is a godly sorrow. And you may know whether you have the worldly sorrow or whether you have godly sorrow. It's not as if we must question, wondering, is my sorrow a proper sorrow or, or maybe... My sorrow is the sorrow of the world. We may know. And here's how you know. Because you are sad that you have offended the holy majesty of God. The God who has taken you into His home his family, his covenant. True godly sorrow is knowing that I have provoked my Father to wrath. That is the first and the outstanding characteristic of the child of God. It is to have a broken heart. Psalm 34, verse 17 and 18. The righteous cry, and the Lord heareth, and delivereth them out of all their troubles. The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. And then God in His tender love brings us from sorrow to joy. Joy, which is the first thing listed by the Heidelberg Catechism as the quickening of the new man. It is a sincere joy of heart in God through Christ. 
joy. It's what every person wants to have within him. We all want to be happy. Joy found not in selfishness. Joy found not in seeking and pursuing our own desires and wants. But joy that is found in union with God Himself. Catechism says it's a sincere joy of heart in God through Christ. Joy in knowing that my sins, every single last one of my sins, have been covered with the blood of Jesus Christ. Joy in being delivered from my tears and being brought into the house and home of God. Joy in knowing that the light of the Father's countenance shines down upon us for Jesus' sake. Joy for happy is that people whose God is the Lord. Thanks be to God for giving us that joy in our hearts. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father and our God in heaven, we are indebted unto Thee not only for the gift of regeneration, but also for daily converting us, so that more and more we hate that which Thou dost hate, and we love and delight in that which Thou dost love. Help us to be faithful until at last Thou dost take us from this earth and remove from us that old man, and we can live in glory with Thee in heaven, for Jesus' sake, amen.